because we were spending so much time running the business. So again, that was actually another great opportunity when Mark took over Beagle Brothers and we got out of uh, Software Touch. Back in uh, the early 2000s, the Beagle Brothers, the ad is that you have the Beagle Brother address and they would say 17 floor. Uh, could you describe the Beagle building at that time? <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about Bert's house? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, first let me let me describe Bert Kersey a little. And of course, uh, Tom knows him quite well and Randy. And, um, uh, Bert's, in a way, kind of a quiet guy, I guess. Uh, uh, I know uh, at Software Touch, uh, we would get these magazine reps coming over all the time wanting to sell us ads and stuff, and they would say, tell us about Bert Kersey, because none of them had ever met him. <laughs> Bert didn't want to see anybody. Uh, uh, but Bert was uh, actually a, um, a graphics artist who... Uh, uh, whose first experience with computers was a TRS-80. And I think he only had it for a week or a couple of days. Isn't that right, Randy? And he, he took had... it back twice for repairs, and the third time he got fed up and bought an apple. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so otherwise, Beagle Brothers might have been writing TRS-80 software. I don't know. Um, but uh, Bert started the operation writing, I think, mostly games and small utilities uh, in BASIC. And he started an operation in his house, and and of course, you old timers are familiar with uh, Bert's style, which I don't think anybody has really been able to duplicate. It's, I think that's probably the main reason most people buy his software was to read the manuals. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's a great catalogs. The catalogs. It was so entertaining. He wrote great letters back too. Yeah. You know, if, oh, really? if you wrote him a letter. You didn't get a letter back. You got your letter back, and every reason in the world what was wrong with your letter. All kinds of stuff on there. And if you mention money in there, he, he just circled the word money, so send me lots. And, <laughs> <laughs> and if you mention problems in there, he said, send them to the trash, you know, something like that. And you're just... They're, they're great. I've got a couple of these at home, and you know those are trophies. Yeah, that's right. Run down to San Diego and buy some. Yeah. What is Bert doing now? He's he's well, yeah, he's retired. Yeah, that's right. He has a model train company. Yeah. <laughs> but mostly he's retired. Uh, anyway, yes, he, he was running his operation out of his home, and when I first started working there. Um, um, the way they would do it is they would transfer the telephone calls to my home, and I would just sit there at home and answer the phone. And then I think later on, I actually started coming into Bert's house and uh, answering the telephone there. And then uh, everything just, you know, boxes were consuming his house and everything, so they got an office and really expanded. But anyway, uh, I think the reason he did those 17th floor and things like that was just to keep track of uh, which magazine it was advertised in. And of course, with Bert, you never, uh, you know, you never knew what was going to happen. <laughs> you know, he had all these made-up names of people and stuff, and people that didn't exist. And, and walking into their home, uh, maybe Randy can help me out here, uh, uh, Bert and his wife are both really collectors of, of antiques and different sort of stuff. <laughs> uh, 
John, John visited one time. He remembers the, uh, the little coffee table with the cowboy boot legs. Yeah. He had a little, little, little thing above the doorbell that said, ring once for trap door and twice for doorbell. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, had hard, he had a hardwood floor, or a, bit, a really long hardwood uh, porch. Uh-huh. Right in front of the door, the hardwood was turned 90 degrees in a little square. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Actually, Roger probably knows him better than anyone. You maybe you have a few anecdotes about him. I'll save those. Did I? <laughs> um, yeah. Actually, what the? I was trying to remember how long it was before Bert first came out. Uh, when I was, I think I was writing for Soft Talk. And uh, maybe it was really, I forget, but he just sort of walked in one day and said, I want to get in the computer business. And uh, tell me everything you know. And that took about five minutes and he left. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Bert's, actually, Bert's great genius was when everybody else was reading uh, Call Apple and trying to be the most brilliant programmer and prove all your friends that you discovered the latest, the most obscure secret of the Apple II. Uh, I mean, we would think about publishing programs and say, oh, well, we can't sell that. That was just published in Call Apple. Everybody knows how to scroll the screen you know, sideways now, so we have to go find something else. Uh, Bert got to realize that as the, as the leading edge moves outward, uh, there's this this the center that is inside that, that grows according to the square. Um, and, and while we were selling uh, single-digit copies of programmer utilities, he was selling bazillions of copies that, uh, of a program that let you rename your error messages. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's another story behind that while we're roasting Roger. Bert was telling me that when he first got into that, he, I got his side of the visiting Roger also. It's nice to both perspectives. But he said that actually he was hoping Roger would publish some of that, but he couldn't convince it because Roger just said, no, there's no future. Bert's big, well, I've got to publish it myself, and Roger won't. And so... Um, yeah, my uh, crystal ball has uh, been an opaque black for <laughs> quite a number of years now. Yeah, there was another program making the rounds that was really another stupid idea like that. Some guy was actually trying to get this program that would like print out greeting cards and <laughs> banners and things. <laughs> You know, it was obvious that why would anybody pay $60 to print out a greeting card program on a dot matrix printer when you can go to Hallmark and get a good one for a buck? I mean, yeah. what a stupid idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, Bert, uh, Bert did have some pretty so his floor. Basically, in San Diego, there's this uh, sort of a nice, quaint part of town. I mean, it's a nice part of town, but the houses are... Are uh, are just are just really nice with old old grown up trees and stuff. Well, you have to realize San Diego is only like a hundred years old from the first building there, so it's not even not even like Kansas City where there's some degree of history. Um, but he basically took the entire top floor of his house and built that into their offices. And we used to meet people on the way to be or, or people we, we would talk to people on the way to Beagle Brothers or on their way back. This guy showed up at our door once from Germany uh, with his wife, girlfriend, or significant other. Uh, and they said, uh, yeah, we've come all the way here, we're touring, we had to come here. This, 
to see uh, Beagle, the famous Beagle Brothers. And uh, we got there and uh, we rang the doorbell and the door opens a crack and says, we don't have visitors. <laughs> so we'll see you instead. <laughs> so yeah, I got stuck. We had to take him out to the spaghetti factory, buy him dinner, give him gifts. <laughs> in the Apple and Beagle Brothers office for quite a while that had a pressure gauge sticking out of the top of it. <laughs> One morning, the secretary used that computer, got an old gauge and drilled a hole in the monitor just to get it threaded and screwed it in. And she came in the next day and said, what's that? And he said, that's the monitor, your words per minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, you know, there is, there is an era. Bert really was a genius at being at getting people to relate to him instantly as far as, like you say, I mean, he had this whole clientele of people, you know, to looking forward to the next catalog and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, but I, one thing that he was, and this isn't a joke, it's absolutely true here, uh, the thing that I thought he was the absolute master in was taking a text screen and making it incredible graphics. And when you look at text train, text yeah. train should be in the Hall of Fame computer program. <laughs> to actually do a model railroad layout with moving trains entirely in 40 <laughs> columns. Uh, with little slashes and equal signs and all the cars moving around. A little animation for this little film. But it was, uh, it, it always just actually, a, Beagle Brothers was a tremendous annoyance to me because my my daughter was like four or five at the time and, you know, she wanted to play uh, Oink and, and the Beagle game, the Beagle bag. The game, and, you know, I said, come on, look at look here over here at Apple Dock and Merlin. This could be fun. <laughs> <laughs> there was one where you'd be typing on, all of a sudden the computer would say, taken over the system. And, yeah, uh, outer limits, yeah. style. Yeah. Was, that a, was that a bit with the, I didn't ever saw that one, I saw one from Todd Mazzini. Uh, uh, and one before the super high-res chess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> would, uh, run and, uh, Bert had one program where it would go in and put up a title screen and then turn on the disk drive and sit there for a little while and then turn off the disk drive and go on. And, it didn't do it <laughs> and so, so you didn't feel like you were being cheated while you looked at the title screen. <laughs> yeah, sounds like Bert. <laughs> Where he used to say he didn't know why anybody bought his software, but as long as they did, he'd keep making 
<laughs> I thought the best thing about his stuff were the manuals, you know, there was the part in the beginning where he actually would teach you something like shape tables and alpha plot and then he'll yeah. teach you the program. Yeah. That was the neatest part of actually learning something about a computer than the program. The little bits of advice that would say, uh, you know, to clean your disk drive, uh, you know, stick a garden hose in if it doesn't work, uh, forget where you read this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Helpful tips like that. <laughs> and Uncle Louie. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uncle Louie says, one go to two. <laughs> you can Louie develop the disk folder that attached to the side of your monitor so it would be easy to reach them. When Roger and I were in San Diego, I, I have a section of tape about him talking about what he was doing in 1977. Rather than play it, why don't you just go ahead and, and recite it from memory? What was I doing in 1977? I don't remember that story, part of the story. Uh, 77, I was teaching school in uh, Mountain Empire School District. Um, I uh, originally thought I would, I was, I thought I was going to be a science teacher. Um, the only problem was I, I never was really very good at math. And in fact, when I was taking my class, I think it was the highest grade I got in math was in ninth grade. I got a, a B in uh, or in geometry or algebra. I guess pre-algebra. I don't know what it was, but every year, what I do remember is every year my grade went down. Letter grade until I got to college and got a negative score on the final. Because <laughs> they took more off for wrong answers than they gave you for right ones. And I, and I used to work at a, a midnight, a graveyard shift at a pancake place. And I used to, I used to, I had no desire to, to do anything with computers because the, these guys would come in with their punch cards. Or, you know, they, or they, more accurately, they would have left their punch cards off at the computer center at 2 in the morning because that was the only time they could get any time on the computer. And then they'd sit and drink coffee at the pancake house all night. Then in the morning they'd be like hanging themselves because some comment had been left off one of the cards. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow that did not look like uh, a, a big incentive to get into computers. But no, I was teaching uh, junior high school. I used to I, I, the high school was in an old amp, our, uh, cavalry barracks uh, in, in, in the rural part of San Diego, and I had this house that was all off by its side. And it was it was really neat because we could set off rockets and explosives. And, you know, but after a couple of years of that, you know, kids were getting like holes burned in their shirts. And I thought, I thought sooner or later the the, the real legal world was going to catch up with me. And I, I, uh, actually, I guess what, actually, Silas, you know, you're an awfully hard act to follow. Uh, but it's true, you know, the pet was a, was appearing on on science magazines everywhere, and, and you know, talking about the bird and the TRS-80, you know, there. But for fortune, I could have been. Doing all my programming on a pet, I was already. I literally walked into a computer land in San Diego with seven hundred dollars in my pocket uh, to buy a, a Commodore pet. Um, I had thought about this for a year, and I thought, okay, I can get a stereo, a new stereo. I could get a, a, a motorcycle, or I could get a computer. And I thought about it. And I thought, well, you know, if I get a stereo or a motorcycle, I'll have to keep spending money on it. <laughs> If I get a computer, all you need is electricity. <laughs> this will be a really cheap hobby. <laughs> so you can see the crystal ball was just fired up. Uh, this uh, one in a million insight and perception was just really uh, homing right in on things.
And uh, so I walked into the computer land, and I was raided by a Commodore, and the guy said, uh, oh, uh, this, uh, the pet, uh, it's out on a demo right now. Uh, he says, actually, you don't really want to buy a Commodore. But you should get an Apple computer. Um, and the Apple computer was like $1,500 for a 4K one instead of 700 And I said, well, why do I want to spend twice as much? He said, well, the keyboard's bigger. <laughs> I thought, now wait a minute, would the great pioneers of our country, you know, have, have whined about a keyboard being too small? You know, they would suffer through it in carving out the path to the future. Uh, and besides, there is this little cheapskate issue there. Referring <laughs> the other day. Uh, and, but what I did notice is at the bottom, uh, the bottom of the little flyer for the Apple computer, it said, Apple dealerships, uh, or dealer inquiries invited, or something like that, saying, you know, be one of our dealers. So I thought, ah, all I have to do is convince a couple of my friends, even one of my friends, to buy a, an Apple with me. We'll call up Apple Computer, say, hi, this is uh, Roger Wagner Computer Stores. Um, <laughs> And uh, I want to place a dealer order for two. I'll get 50% off. I'll get my Apple computer for 700 bucks. <laughs> and this will work out great. Because I have the funny thing, the, the other part of the equation was the computer land was really offensive. I thought $700 isn't a lot of money to me. $1,500 is even more. And their whole attitude was, look, either buy it or get out. We don't have time to possibly turn on the computer or do anything for you. So all the complaints people have. By the way, I was literally in that same computer land, uh, just literally uh, within the last month with uh, uh, Gary Carlson from Broderbuddy. Come down to San Diego and was going to buy a Mac PowerBook. Uh, walked in with $4,000 cash in his pocket and was going to buy one, and they would not open a box. They said, if, literally, I swear, this people in the same computer land said, well, you understand, sir, that if we open the box, you will have to buy the computer. <laughs> and they said, and as we walked out, the guy is saying, you're not going to find a single computer store that'll open, that's going to sell, that's going to let you open the box and then, and then not buy it. <laughs> So the story has not changed. <laughs> Why they are still there is really the mystery of the century. But uh, yes, but uh, anyway, so I so we did. And I had summers off being uh, being a, a teacher, and I had always wanted to have my. I always thought, well, actually, it wasn't so much. I always wanted to have a business, but I noticed that when you're reading in the in the Jules Verne stories, you know the 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 great. Robert the Conqueror and, uh, and uh, Captain Nemo with his submarine and all of these neat stories. These were always people that obviously had infinite wealth somewhere <laughs> that let them build these huge machines. So I knew, so I figured somewhere I was supposed to start a business of my own and then I'd have all these neat toys. The problem was that I knew absolutely nothing about business uh, or math or computers uh, in, in starting this, but I thought I'd just start some little computer venture. And, Originally, it was going to the Southwestern Data Systems was our original name, and that was just picked because I thought, well, I can put it on a business card. I can change my mind any week about what the company's supposed to be. <laughs> you know, if it was called, you know, Santee Computers, that would sound kind of diminutive. If it was called Cosmic Computer Systems, that would sound a little overly ambitious. Southwestern Data Systems was picked deliberately to be vague. <laughs> and uh, but and, and so I actually I actually bought a suit. 
I got an attache case. I got an Apple II. Your first time. And my first time. And I walk up and down strip malls, going into dry cleaners with Apple Vision and an Apple II Plus, saying, "Say, have you heard of the Apple II?" And they said, "Well, that's really cute, but how would I use it?" The problem was there was absolutely no software for this. But don't you see the potential in this thing? And uh, uh, so I wasn't very successful at selling Apple II computers. So I had a whole lot of time to sit back in, in my uh, house while I was moping. <laughs> and I, I bought all these books on BASIC and bought back issues of Creative Computing. Uh, uh, actually, they, that was, I think that was a magazine that really should have... Something's missing from computing today. The, the, the whole idea of a, of a mind and creative amplifier and the computers are... In, uh, in, at the time, I mean, this, you know, Tom was still wearing his uh, love beads. Uh, <laughs> uh, remember, remember the good old days, Tom, when, when computers were, were, all, were all being uh, driven around VW buses. And everybody thought that this was going to be the power of the people and the creative minds had been freed from the shackles of corporate America. And that we're all going to use these as our little personal creative amplifiers and stuff. And, David all had all these neat things going in creative computing, and then Byte Magazine, uh, you know, eventually our, somebody wrote BizAcalc, and they decided it, was, it really was a business machine after yeah. all. It was really sad. Um, I don't know, what other kinds of weird things? I have a tremendous history uh, uh, of, of, of being near misses, uh, or competing with Apple Computer even. The first program I wrote was the Programmer's Utility Kit on, a, on, on cassettes. Um, which renumbered your programs. Um, wow, and it, it actually was, a, because I knew nothing about computers, the great, the great uh, brilliance of that program was I figured out how to get one basic program to renumber another. The, the magic was how to have two basic programs in memory at the same time. It was a bit uh, deficient on the speed size, or the speed aspect. Uh, since it had to peek every byte in Applesoft in a giant for next loop saying, okay, is this a go-to? No. No. It was probably the first use of the hourglass cursor. In <laughs> Actually, the, the, the second program, the, the, uh, then I wrote a little program that called Roger's Easel that was a low-res drawing program that, uh, that we approved. We always told everybody in the office said it was a nice little program. Uh, never sold any, but it was a nice little program. Now it was this program called Apple. But oh, so anyway, so after we did Programmer's Utility Pack with a renumber program, then Apple came out with one about three months after I shipped that tape. Uh, so we went back to the drawing board, and then I did this program called Apple Doc that, that made a list of all your variables and did all this in an AppleSoft program. And that one actually, it wasn't. It, it actually was also written in basic and did a lot of peaking. But to entertain you, it had this little asterisk that just jumped from one side of the screen to the other so you could tell it was doing something. That actually was a great psychological breakthrough. And then I think about six months after that, Apple came out with the their cross variable cross-referencer. Uh, we did an assembler while Apple was selling Edison. Uh, we had a, a, a program line editor called Ace. And Beagle Brothers did... Uh, I think it was, was it GPLE or just PLE originally? It was, well, it was originally through Cal Apple, and then Beagle Brothers took it over. And so, yeah, so they had this line uh, editor that basically cleaned my clock. <laughs> <laughs> then we had this little, this little uh, on-screen 
when you're talking about 40 columns, the, the, the word processor stories were really great. It was Dan Paymar had this little lowercase converter chip that you would put yeah. in, and uh, like I said before, that was um, why. The, yes? We, uh, we actually wound up being sold the owners for that. <laughs> what did ever happen to Dan Paymar? They had a bunch of money and got out and went into airport but for a while, that was the big item. It was a little chip on a board you could stick well, in. The thing of it was that we basically um, bought out his lowercase chip. Hmm. Bought him out. And so we were shipping lowercase chips with our super texts. Bundled hardware software. Gosh. Yeah, don't forget that's, that's, that's what a wire. That's right. <laughs> that's right. And then Bank Street Writer came up. Between Bank Street Writer and. Uh, uh, Magic Window and, and Supertext, the uh, correspondent was never really uh, destined for greatness, although we did eventually change the name to the right choice. And I learned a little about legal uh, things when, uh, was it Activision? Came out with Writer's Choice, and uh, I'd, I'd gone to all this trouble to federally register the trademark for Right Choice and listen to great stories from my lawyer about how, you know, one company once upon a time had something like... Uh, I forget what it was, it was something weird like, uh, you know, tuna, the farmer's tuna, and somehow that was a copyright infringement on Chicken of the Sea, and how this was really great that I had a, a good trademark, and then Writer's Choice came out, uh, and I said, well, wait a minute, I got this federal document that says Write Choice is our word processor, surely this must be good for something. He said, yeah, pay me $20,000, and I'll, I'll go tell them they shouldn't do that. <laughs> I discovered that basically any problem uh, that is not worth $20,000 to solve uh, is uh, the, the, the legal, uh, the laws don't matter. You can, you can, in fact, I learned that when, uh, my first brush was that was in fact when a computer store in California uh, bought about $6,000 worth of software from us uh, and then just said, sorry, we don't have the money to pay the check. And the checks basically bounced when we call them. We said, well, it's not going to get any better either. Um, and we called the district attorney, and, he, and the guy said, oh, yes, they, this, they do this all over the country. They have bought tens of thousands of dollars of software each from every software and hardware manufacturer across the country. But um, So we know exactly what they're doing, but uh, all they need to do is have $1 in their checking account, and they just say, oh, well, we meant to make a deposit that day. And the, uh, it says you can, again, hire a lawyer for $10,000, to get your $6,000 back, but then all you'll have is a piece of paper from a judge saying they owe you the money, which is exactly what you have now. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, there was no civil thing. But anyway, that was that, that was a weird thing. What else? We had Bizarre. In fact, uh, I was glad to see Silas here today, too, because with your character generator, uh, we did this game, another marketing brilliance. Another, see, a lot of lessons, a lot of valuable things here. You could model your future software company. <laughs> Many of the brilliant things that, that we've done at RWP. Uh, when game, everybody was, in fact, what, Sirius Software, um, uh, Ken Williams with online, and uh, Broderbund were getting into this arms race of who could run uh, 10 to 20 pages of full-color ads for games every month in Soft Talk magazine. Boy, those were the days, Paul, huh? <laughs> what are these wimps now doing, huh? Where are those 10 pages of color ads? But we did. We got this uh, clever idea for a game called Bizarre, 
that was going to be the first game written by aliens with the with Earth people as the bad guys. And I, I, we went so far on the illusion that when the screens came up, the, the, the title screen was totally in this alien script. All of the instructions on the screen were in this cryptic alphabet. The packaging was all in the cryptic alphabet. So the name was hieroglyphic stuff. All of the illustrations, the entire packaging, and the only thing was was on the packaging we had printed as though it had been pasted on with a with a paper clip, and the paper clip was was printed as part of the package. Was a note from me saying we found this weird alien arcade game, <laughs> and we've been able to get it onto a diskette, but we don't know anything about it. Your challenge is to figure out how to play the game, <laughs> what the rules are, uh, and Soft Talk ran a contest that we ran ads entirely in the alien script. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the, yeah, yeah. Roger, let me top that. <laughs> <laughs> when we got the ads, uh, of course, the script was, you could decipher it. You know, you, it was written in English that all the letters were substituted. So we could decipher it. Now, at that time, we were working on our high-risk character generator version of SuperTech. And I have the... The, just the, I have the item that you're referring to was pinned to our wall for uh, for years after. Uh, but go so on. So we built, we took the we took the character set out of the high res version of SuperTech and built a version that wrote in this script he devised <laughs> and proceeded to write a fan letter back to him in his own script. <laughs> <laughs> And that letter was, uh, was as I said, remained pinned to our wall uh, for years, and, and, and actually was one of the reasons I was very much looking forward to seeing you here. Uh, and the only problem was, we, you know, we wanted to take this so far. I mean, talk about, you know, just sinking your teeth into this thing beyond the point of any reasonable level. You know, the problem is distributors can't list it in a price list. We, we were going to send it <laughs> because if we said the name. It would have that would have given the way. Now the simple solution would have been to just put another name on there, you know, and call it that alien thing. But but we, you know, unfortunately we just went too far and we couldn't say the name because that would give you four of the letters. If we said bizarre, you'd know the first alien character was an a B. Um, and and but it really we got it was like your PR thing. It was amazing. We got letters of requests from cryptology books uh, wanting to reproduce. Things in in their uh, college textbooks on cryptology. We ran all of these ads that nobody could read. <laughs> so that was a that was just a great idea. <laughs> uh, I'm remember we had another one called NORAD. Anybody oh, yeah, here ever get NORAD? Yeah. All right. I actually thought NORAD was a really neat game, and I, in fact, there was another one. What was neat is that you could launch multiple rockets and you had to steer them with the arrow keys. And in NORAD, you just steered one of them, but you could launch two. And when the first one was getting sufficiently close, you could sort of disengage the navigation, launch another one, and steer that. Space your, bar and space bar would explode them. It was, you know, a good game should really induce rampant panic in the player. <laughs> and that, that was from a Canadian company. Uh, and and NORAD really was a was a pretty fun game, but it did not sell the bazillions that uh, we thought we were going to sell. Let's see, we also had a, a thing called Spanish for the Traveler. Uh, interesting because 
It, there has no entertainment value, uh, but it was, in fact, it was a very boring Spanish language thing, but it came with cassettes. The interesting thing about that story, is another Bert Kersey story, that was the very first program done by Davidson and Associates. Um, and they, we published it, and I said, look, uh, and they were very strong, they had very strong opinions about how to do their software. Uh, and so they brought this in, and I said, this is pretty neat, but we really ought to make it like a game, you know, so that there's some fun part of it. They said, no, this is educational software, it has to be very serious. Um, so they made it very serious, it didn't sell very well. The very next program they did was something like Math Blaster. <laughs> they made it totally into a game, they said, we're going to publish this one ourselves. Davidson is now a multi-million dollar <laughs> based on the entertainment value and game portion of all their software. Uh, I think we did MouseWrite, uh, which was the first pull-down window uh, word processor. Uh, that was based on a conversation with Apple Computer that every Apple IIe within just months was going to ship with a mouse built in. Um, we we uh, actually invented an interesting, that was the first time I ever did uh, external financing. Got this clever idea that if an author could contribute time, someone else could contribute money. And found someone to put up uh, basically $50,000 for a percentage uh, royalty as a central exchange. Uh, uh, based on the fact that Apple was going to put uh, mice in every single Apple to it. <laughs> uh, they changed their mind on that. They meant mouse text. That's it, mouse Yeah, that's right. They came with a mouse text toolkit. They, they said everybody should use this in their programs. Uh, we then, uh, they then came out with uh, the, the graphics version, and StyleWriter came out with, uh, what's it just called, StyleWriter? Multiscribe. Multi <laughs> and uh, that's when I learned the, the moral about making pe people eat their vegetables. Uh, my, and when you have to explain to people too long about why your approach is right when they, they know they just want the other one. <laughs> that that's God talking to you. Uh, we used to go and do presentations, and we'd show mouse right. The first thing people would say is, "Well, why can't you see the underlines and underlines and the bolds and bolds and all that stuff?" And we'd say, "Oh, because on a 128 computer K computer, you're only going to be able to hold three pages in memory. It's going to take a half an hour to print out your three pages. Um, it's going to be slower than the Dickens." You know, we gave this long list of, of explanations. Multiscribe came out, gave people bold on the screen, three pages, three hours to print, horribly slow, and sold tens of thousands. I think they sold thirty or forty thousand copies of uh, of that program, and actually got listed in like uh, InfoWorld, you know, along with Lotus One Two Three, that were price quotes, weekly price quotes on the street price of uh, of Multiscribe. So you can see, there's a lot of excellent examples here that you should really follow <laughs> in the course of, uh, of uh, building a mighty software company. You did mention one thing about MouseWrite. Uh, I remember going to a trade show, I think it was an Apple Fest, and I think uh, MouseWrite must have been fairly new. Anyway, Roger had Miss MouseWrite. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of a like a yeah. I remember bailing Playboy Paul Bunny. out of the out of the local pokey that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in fact, I was in San Francisco. San Francisco. We offered to have. We thought a Miss a Miss Miss Mouse right might be good, but uh, later on, when Hyper Studio came out, in fact, we thought about balancing out with a Hyper Stud, but <laughs> I thought I might have to, you know, naturally take that position. Uh, Okay. <laughs>
No, that's right. We did. We and that was a tough job. I'll tell you, the software business can be horrible. I mean, uh, Garland and I had to go to teenage modeling agencies <laughs> and have these, you know, sixteen and seventeen-year-old girls come out in the bikinis and walk up and down the <laughs> runway, and then like interview for the jobs that are being actually friendly, and they would talk to computer nerds <laughs> and say, "Oh yeah, I just love computers. Uh, I know a lot about silicone." Uh, <laughs> But we also did have people come up to us irate and say, well, I'm never going to buy mouse right because of your sexist exploitation. Yeah. But, yeah, it's a tough business. Okay, well, what other good stories are there? Oh. Yes, Tom? Well, you never, you never really, you, a long time ago you talked about becoming an Apple dealer and you never finished the story of what happened when you called Apple. Yeah. Oh, they uh, yeah, I called Apple and said I want to be a dealer and they said great, we'll be down to see your store. <laughs> I said store? Uh, can't I just order two? Um, so they said so anyway, so they actually had distribute local distributors at that point and the people um, and there was no store but they were actually very friendly and what they said was what you might do and this uh, the guy said this is I I mean I didn't lie to him right now, I don't have a store. And he said, well, you, what you might do is find an existing electronics store and convince them to carry the Apple II computer and then buy the inventory from them, for, you know, offer them 5% over what they'll pay for it. And I actually did that. I found a, a store, I, gosh, I, I forget the name of it, but it was a little store in San Diego that was selling the Sorcerer, the Exidy Sorcerer. If you've ever you heard of that, you're really dating yourself and showing how little of a life you have, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, so there was, there was, there was this Exidy sorcerer, um, that, this, that Mark Yaxley, I think was his name, had, and he said, all right, if you put up the money and buy the, you know, just basically we'll bring in the, the Apple II, uh, and you can do this 5% trick, and so that's how I got the computers. And interestingly enough, within about two years, that store, for, for one brief week when, when mail order was going crazy, that store was the largest mover of Apple IIs in the entire country um, because their mail order selling of their Apple IIs had just gone through the roof and the self, needless to say the Exidy Sorcerer disappeared into oblivion. And, uh, and I think it was S100 compatible. Uh, no, that was just, this was, uh, I, I like deals that, you know, that are like too good to be true. They tend to be unprofitable for me, but they're easy to sell. So I just put up, I said, you know, I said, I'll put up the money to keep your inventory, to have a machine on the floor so that, you know, it looks like you're a real store. Um, and they basically then just ordered stuff and, and put it through. So is that most of the story on that, Tom? Yeah, and then I think at some point we changed to Roger Wagner Publishing. Well, Mouse, there was also ASCII Express. And the only interesting things about that, I guess, are the fact that, again, knowing nothing about business, that was really our first big program. And Bill Blue uh, was a friend, was in the local user group, and he said, gee, I've written this communications program. And I said, well, you know, if I have to keep writing the, this software like Roger's Easel, uh, I'll have to keep being immensely clever. Uh, and so I'll publish other people's programs, and then I won't have to be as clever. I'll find other clever people. And so I said, well, let's tell you what, we could just split it right down the middle, but let's figure a third for overhead, two-thirds profit, so I'll give you a third, I'll take a third, but I'll round it to 35% for you. Um, 
So he got a 35% royalty um, on ASCII Express. And what I found was the more I sold, the more I was in debt. <laughs> and so the more I was in debt, the harder I worked to sell more to get out of debt, not realizing the relationship I was in um, until we got, I think we reached a high of like 1,500 copies a month or something, uh, still through soft talk. Um, and then he, at one point he said, well, you know, he said, you should run this like a real business. And I said, okay, how about if we lower the royalty to like 20%? And he said, well, we're going to do that. I should just sell it myself. Yeah. He raised $2 million in venture capital stock in 60 days uh, and formed United Software. Um, another little detail that eluded me along the way. The stock <laughs> um, so how are you still in business? Uh, real cheap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think the little works. The, the, the poster that uh, we've done so much with so little for so long, we're now prepared to do anything with nothing. <laughs> Which I don't know what that says about Hyper Studio, but uh, but anyway, so uh, he formed his own company, company but ASCII Express, that was, uh, in fact, there was another thing where I actually hired a marketing consultant briefly uh, when we were selling Apple Doc on, on, on discs at that point. And he said, uh, you realize you should mark up whatever it costs you to make the disc and put it in a Ziploc bag, you should multiply by at least six. And at the time, I figured the Ziploc bag and the manuals that I literally was typing on a typewriter and Xeroxing uh, was costing five bucks. And I said, are you kidding? I said, you obviously don't know the computer industry. No one will ever pay $30 for a piece of software. <laughs> so we just fired his ass right out of <laughs> Being completely out of touch with the principles of business. <laughs> and within a year or two, we were charging a $30 for Apple Doc. <laughs> Um, and that uh, has actually turned out to be a real good rule in, uh, in everything you do. Uh, so I probably should have kept that guy around. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I learned about business markup. I learned about markups and, uh, and uh, what royalties not to pay. Uh, Glenn Breeden, a lot of people don't know that I actually only met Glenn Breeden once uh, to, to this day. Oh, hey. uh, I, I call him up on the phone. How many people in this room have actually talked to Glenn Breen on the phone? How many people did that conversation consist of more than one syllable or last for more than 30 seconds? <laughs> I call him, and, and uh, uh, Val Golding, who we really need a picture to, to really bring back the fond memories of Val Golding, uh, who, by the way, has recently gotten married to a... Uh, uh, Beautiful young girl from the Philippines, and they have. He has Val Golding as a father uh, of, a, of a now a one year old or something uh, at this point, and uh, Val's got a whole another life doing all kinds of crazy things. Val is Val is quite a character. Well, Val called me up from Call Call Apple and uh, said, "You, how'd you like to sell this Mer this big Mac program?" I think is what they were calling it. Mm -hmm. So I called up Glenn Breeden and gave him launched into one of my very short conversations. You know, which, about why we should publish this program. You know, he basically started with hello, said um, uh-huh once or something. And he's, and I said, well, how's that sound? And he said, okay. <laughs> you know, and even at my worst, even at my worst, the, 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 the other part of the conversation usually manages to at least nod or sort of say uh-huh once in a while so you know they're not falling asleep. <laughs> Yes. You know what Glenn does for a living? Yes, he is a professor of math at Rutgers. 
Continuously for an hour. It's hard to imagine. I start talking that probably is, but it was just it was just funny because I used to really Glenn is a wonderful guy. If you talk to him online, any of you who've been online know that you can have the most obscure problem with your that printer and card you were mentioning the other day and your your it's a hard drive with your homebrew SCSI card. Um, and and Glenn will take an inordinate amount of time figuring the whole thing out with with Procell and making up patches and sending you stuff online and just doing incredible amounts of work for anybody. Um, but I used to tell when people call and I'd say, well, I can't help you with with Procell or, or, or Merlin. Call Glenn, but let me just warn you that when you do, you're going to feel like you must have just interrupted him. <laughs> and he's he's really mad at you. But anyway, the the real story was I never met Glenn. Um, until the Apple Fest in New Jersey, um, and uh, met him briefly there. Another time when, because I didn't get to talk to him much, I came into town to see, uh, the, there was an educational conference there, and, I, I, and it turns out the people that do uh, the Hyper Studio Network, a newsletter, uh, that, that comes right out of uh, uh, Princeton, uh, Plainsboro, right, which is essentially, he, anyway, Glenn's in the user group. We're at, we finish up, I call, I, I just, uh, we're going to go to get a beer. I said, let's call up Glenn Breen, we're right here. I called up Glenn, and this was actually before I met him. Uh, before the Apple Fest, I guess it was, I called up Glenn from a payphone. said, Glenn, you'll never guess where I'm at. I'm at a phone booth. I'm probably three blocks from your house. Uh, we've never met. How'd you like to go get a beer? And, uh, and, and he said, well, tonight's not really a good night for me. I said, well, how about if I just come over? No, it's, we're, we're just, I'm just kind of busy. <laughs> Maybe another time. So I said, oh, I, sure, I get out to Princeton all the time. I'll just, <laughs> we'll just do it next time I'm out. So. What does he look like? Um, just, he's, he's all, uh, older. I mean, he's probably only in his 50s. I mean, nothing uh, particularly outstanding that comes to mind, but he's just a very private you know, quiet kind of guy. It was just, yeah. it was just interesting. I, it has been interesting to work with people over the distance. When I, I just said once, uh, when we did Hyper Studio, I didn't meet Michael O'Keefe, who was the main author on that, for a year into the project. And it is, it is weird to be in a in a business where almost nobody, except for Bert Kersey, was in San Diego. Everybody is over the phone. I mean, I think one of the neat things about this this little thing we do every year is to actually get together and be able to see people face-to-face uh, -face is, is like the rare part of it. An interesting story about Kwame Verdon, we had we were holding our meetings in the West Windsor Plains for our middle school, and then no, we were holding it in the high school, and in the middle school, which was half a mile away from the, from the middle school, and Glenn stopped coming to the meetings, so I called him and said, Glenn, how can I come to the meetings? Well, I really don't have any way of getting out there, so oh, I'll come and pick you up, sorry. So I went to his house, picked him up a couple of times, took him to the new school. They didn't know how to get there, and he comes to the meetings all the time. <laughs> <laughs> put a map on the back of the newsletter. <laughs> it's about two miles from his house. <laughs> I guess it wasn't on the way to Rutgers. <laughs> yeah, now you have to admit, the variation of personalities in our businesses keeps things very interesting. one. <laughs> <laughs> Who won the Bizarre Contest? Oh, the Bizarre Contest was incredible. We did this thing where if you could, could translate the entire package 
we would give you a free Apple II. And I couldn't believe people actually were doing full color mock-ups of the pack. I mean, they didn't just send in a scrap of paper with the words written on it. They were actually doing package recreations with the words practically typeset with rub-on letters in English and recreating the whole thing. It was, it was amazing. It was one of the neatest the things, things to ever get. I guess so. But, you know, Neil say everybody that entered the contest already had one. But, you know, some, basically some, the thing that people got, uh, the thing that tripped up almost everybody was just there were numbers and places. they translate the package, but they'd forget that some of the cargo bays had numbers, you know, in, in a little circle or, you know, over doors or things like that. Oh, in fact, the other thing about Bazaar that was unique was I do believe, um, I, we can't claim a lot of firsts, but I do believe that Bazaar was the first program to ever use the, they call it now the boss key, or the, I forget. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We were having a conversation with Gary Carlson about Broderbun saying that here in his office the accountants were playing their games. And from that conversation, we put in the, the control W that put up a spreadsheet uh, while you were playing the bar. <laughs> so if anybody walked by, you'd hit this, and it, it'd put up a thing like, just like VisiCalc. <laughs> and we also put in, like, since you couldn't read anything, just for fun in the translation, the other thing that had to be translated was we found this weird uh, dual-tone beat-frequency whine uh, put this wine routine together that would make the computer sound like sort of a jet turbine warming up. And whenever you hit control reset uh, in, in, or, you know, or whatever reset in the program, it would go into this wine, and the whole machine would, you know, would start at low enough frequency. You would, a little luck, you'd get your speaker, the metal parts vibrating. Starting to go. And about halfway through this, this message came up in the script, of course, that said, microprocessor meltdown in progress. <laughs> Yeah, that was uh, that was worth it. <laughs> so, uh, so what other what other embarrassing and humiliating things can I tell you about? Right? The uh, there was the only the one thing funny happened. The other thing I remember about MouseWrite was there was another company that was uh, what was it called Inter I'll say International what was it called? International Solutions, and they had they came out with mouse. Word, except that it wasn't really going to be called Mouse Word. In fact, they came out with a Mouse Calc was the first program, and it was this deal where they got uh, Jean Luc Picard or some French program. I forget his name. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the um, yeah. Um, so they they it's a, they did this. They got some French people and they wrote this Mouse Calc program, and it was really funny in a in a sad sort of way for them. That mouse calc on the back of their box, they had this menu pulled down because they were going to integrate these three programs. Uh, of course, they had the last, last, the, the multi scribe thing was sold for millions to Claris. But uh, anyway, they had this deal where they got to do these integrated programs, and in the back of their mouse calc box, they had a menu pulled down that said mouse right. And because mouse right actually made it out before their program hit the shelves, 
they didn't uh, they didn't contest the the trademark, and so mouse right their mouse right became mouse word, but their mouse calc boxes all said mouse right. <laughs> said after you're used to this, go out and be sure to get mouse right. Yeah. And all the boxes were printed, and we said, oh, it's okay, you don't have to change your box. <laughs> <laughs> That would be okay. <laughs> and that's, that's what I now is. And it was true that we did run some ads. I was, I was reminding Paul this morning. We did run ads in, uh, in, in Cider for Mount. We actually did a real press rollout. We'd gone to some cult consultants that said for $150,000 retainer sort of thing, which all the money went for their services, um, they would help us roll out our product and that they could get us in to see editors. Um, you know, and then they could organize a press tour. So uh, we hopped in our car and said, well, wait a minute, we can buy a ticket, we can knock on the door, let's see how this works. So we did this this grand press tour. And that was the first time we went to see Insider Magazine in their little New England uh, barn. Or <laughs> uh, actually, to, on a, I guess it was really Byte Magazine had sort of that, the thing was closer to a barn, yours was sort of an extended house, but... It was everybody had sort of things that looked more like converted houses than, uh, than offices, but but we did actually do. But so so we did this rollout and we ran uh, tens of thousands of dollars of ads at Insider Magazine and even paid for some of them. It actually took uh, five years, didn't it? But I think over a ma over uh, a number of the reason we didn't run any ads is it took us five years to actually pay off the first uh, six months worth of advertising we ran in the Insider magazine. Yeah, that was uh, that's what I. Yeah, and that actually is the truth. We did run ads, and we just went uh, all of the profits from assembly lines, the book, um, basically went into uh, and then whatever went into paying off Insider magazine for over the next five years. So alien script ads don't really work. Yeah, I, I would recommend against. Uh, Are there any copies of that around? Uh, yeah, actually, we still have a, a bin. So uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember if it'll run on a ROM three machine. Uh, one of them was copy protected, but actually, uh, what Silas was saying about the copy protections, we did the same thing. We basically just took the header byte with a with a with a, essentially like a byte zap program. And in DOS 3.3 was finicky enough that if you just took one byte that was like an A9 and changed it to a 9A, and as long as you patched DOS to look for the same flag, it would boot, but, you, but the copy programs would choke. And I also think ours were the first... Now, so what we did is the, the programs themselves weren't copy protected. The disk was. I guess the, the programs looked to see if the disk was in the drive. But I know the cute thing we also did was we were the first program with the right choice that, that made three backup copies. Um, so you had one copy, but you it would it had a copy program on there. It would make three copies, um, and the only the, the only thing that used to annoy me is we did this thing in, some, in a review somewhere. Someone picked on us about the, the you know the the copy co program. Uh, they actually reviewed the copy program. There was a little review of the right choice. They said one paragraph about the right choice as a word processor, and there were three paragraphs about whether the copy program actually prompted you to insert the disks, and whether we chose the right keys for hitting return, and, and, and uh, that sort of stuff. Why were they so uh, hyped up on copy protection? Uh, mainly because uh, you you would sell as a, yeah mainly because people made copies. We I once read a review in France. Uh, that said that you know the, the the review began off began as you know Merlin is the most popular assembler in France. This month we're going to tell you some neat tricks. 
we had sold two copies of Merlin into France. Uh, <laughs> uh, you have to remember that there's a danger in saying, well, gee, me and my friends do this, so that must mean everybody is like us. Uh, what copy protection did, you know, for a while, which, you know, was that, that there are a lot of people that just put the disk in the drive. You know, I mean, our technical support things were, you know, I put the disk in the drive, but, it, you know, they had it turned sideways. Um, they would not take it out of the sleeve at all. Uh, you know, I mean, some of the stuff. On Hyper Studio, we got a call in recent memory where someone said our sound recorder didn't work because they were shouting at the picture of the tape recorder on the monitor screen. <laughs> <laughs> That's serious. And this one took, you know, stuff like that takes a while to answer in text work because Jeff's saying, well, all, you know, is everything plugged in right? Is the digitizer plugged in? And so there are a lot of people for which even, you know, just, you know, anything that slows down the copy process is sufficient to, and, you know, and when you've got an exponential curve out there, every one copy eventually grows into 100,000. So, you know, uh, stop, you know, I don't know, I, uh, this isn't, this, it, it, I don't think this would, uh, I don't think copy protection is, is a fun discussion, but the only idea I had on that was when I realized exactly what, what you did, which was that, that copy protection was a challenge. I said, I never wanted to spend the money for, for high-level copy protection, uh, but it did occur to me that that might actually be a way of making money, would be to have programs that, that just, that there was no program. All there was was a little thing that printed out a certificate. And that, that you might actually sell a lot of these because everybody would go out and buy these and, and they'd be the one, the one that would have the first certificate that would say that they had actually cracked copy scheme number 400. And it would be like adventure games for the highly intellectual. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a market segment that I don't ever think was developed, but it really made a lot of sense. I just wasn't clever enough to, to be the one to, to outsmart everybody else. Um, but well, with that great idea, Roger, we're out of time. Okay. Uh, we appreciate you guys coming. My pleasure. Well, I, I should say, well, thank you. And uh, last night, you know, I, I felt bad because I, did, I don't think I... I'm not very good sometimes with the spontaneous, meaningful stuff. Um, but I, since this is the last chance I'll have to tell everybody, it really is true. There is something about all of us together that really... <laughs> is the neat part for me. I, I want to thank you, everybody here, for, for having, for being friends and, and making all this fun for me. So, get out of here. <laughs>